0: Hey guys happy holidays and merry christmas jason seitz here the younger and some would argue better seitz brother who would argue that you ask maybe a lot of people definitely not chris hopefully my friends but also not my parents let that sink in for a minute anyway you may have been missing us lately on the pod we certainly have been missing you but i wanted to give you a quick update to let you know that we're not dead and that we've been hard at work to bring you some very exciting things in the coming months I promise you we haven't been asleep at the Switch and we'll be bringing you quite a bit of content very soon. Some of which I'll allow you to peek behind the curtain with me and get a snippet of today. So buckle up for the next couple of minutes to find out what new things are coming to Guardian and then on to hear a short 30 minute lecture on toxicology from our NREMT test prep program. So let's talk high level stuff. Guardian Education Group, our sort of parent company to several entities that run underneath it, including Guardian CME, Guardian Test Prep, Guardian Medical Direction, Guardian MD Connect, various marketing services, socials, and Facebook groups, is in the process of merging or blending all of that together under one roof as just Guardian Medical Direction. Have no fear, though. All that this means for the podcast, as well as our other educational components, is that we'll be able to clean up some of the logistics and commit time and resources more directly to those entities which should manifest as only improvements to what you already know and love. These improvements include a significant facelift to Guardian CME, our learning management system, that you currently use to receive continuing education credits for EMS and now will be able to use for continuing education credits for nursing as well. I know we've teased this quite a bit, and I promise it's coming very soon. I've personally been hard at work obtaining the accreditations we need, as well as designing and producing some basic curriculum for it, so that when nurses are ready to log on, they'll have 10 or so courses to take right off the bat, and then future podcasts and projects we can add on from there. A couple of things on that though, one of which is the type of accreditation we have requires our nursing credits to be one hour in length. But our EMS accreditation through CAPC allows half hour or even three quarter hour blocks, which means that if we wanna release a piece of content or a podcast that we want to work for both EMS and nursing credits, it's gotta be an hour long. Chris and I have talked a bit about this and have decided that we feel our flow on the podcast does better in the half hour range. And we want listeners to have a smaller time commitment per episode. So moving forward, similar to like we did with ACLS and pediatric assessment, we'll be releasing episodes in parts. So for instance, episode 70 might be a part one lasting 30 minutes. And then 71 would be a part two of the same topic lasting 30 minutes. The combination of these episodes will create the credit on Guardian CME So you have the option as a casual listener on streaming apps to just listen to several 30-minute episodes at your leisure, and only if you want the credit would you need to listen to the hour-long combined version all at once on the platform. Most of our initial release of nursing credits will be EMS accredited as well. Some of the topics we've developed we think that you'll really enjoy, and will be more professionally produced than a standard podcast. These include strokes and stroke identification, a basics of pharmacology course, a 12 week EKG course, a capnography course, a bleeding control course, and quite a few more. Along with the curriculum and new nursing profiles, we felt for some time that the user interface on Guardian CME is a bit clunky. With some new resources at our disposal, we'll keep spinning up several new tech teams in the new year that will implement some much-needed improvements to the site involving navigation of credits, profile creation and editing, descriptions of the credits and the accreditations that we hold, and overall cleaner aesthetics. Thank you for your feedback on the platform as is, and we look forward to improving your user experience. Guardian has recently moved to some new and rather fancy office property that will allow us to expand our podcast and training video sets and have them more permanently set up in their new home. With Chris, our producer, Jamie, and I all in adjoining offices, with the studio only 30 steps away, it's gonna save a ton of time and money logistically, and I'm excited about new opportunities to update old content and crank out new content faster than we ever have before. Guardian test prep may or may not be moving to be hosted on Guardian CME's site. And all of that may also move to Guardian MD site eventually, depending on how quickly we can implement our development plans. But I do expect the opportunity to soon update some of our test prep curriculum, reset the pricing structure, and possibly start introducing some NCLEX prep for our nurses in training out there. In terms of Guardian Medical Direction, we've had the privilege to work alongside hundreds of clinics as they increase access to healthcare in their communities and support thousands of medical providers as they start and scale their own healthcare businesses. I could talk all day about the improvements and integrations we've made to our organization, as well as our plans for the future, but I'll just give you some quick highlights. Version two of our Guardian MD platform is launched and is being constantly improved upon, which allows the clinics we offer medical direction for to have increasingly improved service from their medical directors. We've spent much time implementing template protocols for nurse-run clinics just starting out who may have trouble in how to structure their procedures, as well as more experienced clinics looking to add to their service lines. Guardian MD Council will soon provide an impressive user experience improvement and allow seamless communication between our providers and clients and assist our medical directors in their management and support of clinics under their direction. Guardian MD Connect, our telemedicine platform, is now fully staffed and offers coverage in nearly every state from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. on weekdays and weekend coverage on Saturdays from 10 to 6. This is used for clinics using our services needing good faith exams by advanced providers prior to patient treatment. Now that's all just in the past quarter, and we have some huge plans for 2024. Long story short, Guardian has been immeasurably blessed this last year and has so much to be thankful for this holiday season. We apologize for our absence from the podcast and promise you'll be hearing a lot from us soon. Thank you so much for supporting our vision to give back to the medical community through free education. We recognize the great responsibility to steward this vision, and we'll work hard not to let you down. You can expect podcasts to continue as normal after the first of the year, but in the meantime, here's something to whet your appetite. A bit of audio content from our test prep vault. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, stay warm, stay safe, and stay sweet. The all-hazard approach to toxicological emergencies starts with having a high index of suspicion of a toxic exposure when responding to a scene. The first question you want to ask is whether or not a hazard or toxin is suspected or not. If so, the next question is whether there has been an
1: exposure or contamination. An exposure means the patient has come in contact with a hazardous material or toxin. A patient is contaminated when the hazardous material or toxin has entered the body. Exposure and contamination can occur through four routes, inhalation, ingestion, absorption, and injection.
0: This becomes your third
1: question. If you suspect a toxin, what is the route of
0: exposure? Answers to these questions will also dictate what type of personal protective equipment, or PPE, is advised or useful. Always err on the side of face
1: mask and gloves. Understanding the route of exposure will allow us to understand what treatments need to be undertaken as well. The fourth and final question that must be asked is this, is there ongoing exposure? Protecting yourself from exposure and the patient from ongoing exposure is the most important first step in management. If you believe exposure is
0: ongoing, make sure to remove yourself and the patient from the environment before completing a more thorough exam and beginning treatments. Part of removing the patient from ongoing exposure may
1: include decontamination of clothes and skin. If a toxin or poison is suspected or identified, make sure to contact poison control immediately. Poison control can guide field management and coordinate transfer of care to the hospital and advise on hospital treatments as well.
0: Other sources available to you include hazardous material guides such as the NIOSH guide. Knowing where to find information regarding hazards and toxins
1: and how to treat exposed or contaminated patients is extremely valuable. Once we have established whether a toxin or hazard is present, the next step is to do our best to identify it if we haven't already. We will accomplish this through an understanding of common toxicological emergencies and how they present, as well as through a good primary and secondary assessment of our patient. As always, our assessment should start with the ABCs and expand
0: from there. We'll also want to utilize our assessment tools such as pulse ox, capnography, EKG, and AccuCheck in order to clue us in on specific toxins or exposures.
1: Though we may not always get a direct answer to what our hazard or toxin may be, by assessing these findings we should be able to intervene with respiratory and cardiac support to prevent further decompensation. Treatment revolves around airway management, cardiac stabilization, and neurological monitoring. If a toxin is identified,
0: specific treatments such as antidotes can be administered to help fend off decompensation and hopefully even reverse effects of specific poisons. As we move through different types of common toxins and poisonings that you may come in contact with, we'll do our best to highlight the different clinical clues
1: that you'll see on your exam to help you identify specific toxins. Keep in mind, however, that in the field these clues won't always be present, and do not change the fact that good respiratory and cardiac management is always key to providing high-quality care to our patients.
0: To summarize our treatment process for poisonings, first, make sure the scene is safe and that standard precautions and PPE are utilized. Decontamination of the patient should then take
1: place, followed by support of ventilation and circulation. Finally, specific treatments such as the use of activated charcoal or antidotes will be utilized. These we will talk more about as we discuss the different types of toxins you may encounter, starting with toxic gases.
0: Toxic gases can be divided into cellular asphyxiant gases, irritant gases, and simple asphyxiant gases. Cellular asphyxiant gases displace
1: oxygen on a cellular level. Examples of cellular asphyxiants include carbon monoxide and cyanide. These two gases are super important to know and understand. You'll definitely get a question on your exam about one of these, and they're also more commonly encountered in the field than other gas exposures. Let's say you respond to a school where two teachers and four
0: students are complaining of headaches, dizziness, and nausea. We'll start by asking ourselves the questions we discussed earlier. Do we suspect a hazard or toxin? And is there ongoing exposure? This is a classic presentation for carbon monoxide exposure.
1: The big clinical clue here is that there is more than one victim. The first step would be to remove the patients from the area before beginning assessment and treatment as ongoing exposure is likely. Carbon monoxide has an affinity for hemoglobin that is
0: 230 times that of oxygen. This means that it is 230 times more likely that hemoglobin will bind to CO instead of O2 if both are present. Treatment is
1: 100% oxygen, and a lot of it. If the patient with carbon monoxide exposure is taken out of that environment and allowed to breathe normal air, which is 21% oxygen, it'll take about three hours for the body to finally remove the carbon monoxide. If put on a non-rebreather, however, the time to remove the CO is 90 minutes. This is because the more oxygen we can put into the lungs, the more likely the hemoglobin will bind it, because there's so much more of it than the CO. If the patient's symptoms are advanced
0: enough that they are beginning to seize or lose consciousness and access to a hyperbaric chamber
1: is available, this will bring the time to removal of CO down to 30 minutes. Cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant as well because it inhibits cellular metabolism so that cells can't bind oxygen. Cyanide is a byproduct of combustion, like carbon monoxide is, so typically exposure and poisoning is found in patients who are exposed to fires.
0: Signs and symptoms are similar to CO, such as headaches, dizziness, confusion, and seizures. Treatment is 100% O2 to increase the binding of oxygen in the cells,
1: but there are also antidotes that can be utilized for cyanide poisoning. The kit is the antidote kit you will utilize in the field, and it includes two medications, hydroxycobalamin and sodium nitrate or amyl nitrate. The hydroxycobalamin is the actual antidote. It converts cyanide to thiocyanate, which is less toxic.
0: Amyl nitrate or sodium nitrate will convert the iron in hemoglobin to create
1: methemoglobin.
0: Methemoglobin is an altered form of hemoglobin that binds
1: cyanide and allows it to be removed safely from the body. Hydroxycobalamine is the drug of choice in this situation, but both medications can be given. However, if a patient has suspected carbon monoxide and cyanide exposure, the nitrates should not be used. This is because a patient exposed to carbon monoxide will have carbon monoxide bound to their
0: hemoglobin, reducing oxygen levels. If we then convert hemoglobin to methemoglobin using the nitrites, we may see an even further drop in oxygen binding, which could lead to worsening
1: hypoxia and death. This is important because patients who have been in house fires and the like are likely to have both cyanide and carbon monoxide poisoning, so only hydroxycobalamine and oxygen should be used. The last cellular asphyxiant gas we want
0: to discuss is hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide is the same as sewer gas, and like cyanide, it inhibits cellular metabolism so that the cells can't use oxygen.
1: Because of this, symptoms remain similar such as headaches, nausea, tremors, and convulsions. Treatment includes decontamination and supportive care of airway, ventilation, oxygenation, and circulation. Hydrogen sulfide is an
0: extremely rapid-acting, highly toxic gas. Fatalities have occurred to rescuers entering the hot
1: zone, so make sure to be very careful when hydrogen sulfide is suspected. This is why the Ninja Turtles are so unrealistic. The irritant toxic gases react with pulmonary tissue to cause acute inhalation injury. Irritant gases include gases such as chlorine, ammonia, and phosgene, as well as nitrogen oxides. These gases react with respiratory tissues and mucous membranes to form hydrogen chloride, which is what causes irritation and injury because it's an acid.
0: Symptoms include increased secretions, tearing of the eyes, cough, bloody sputum, and shortness of breath from the increased secretions. These effects can lead to acute inhalation injury where pulmonary edema and destruction of deeper lung tissue leads to hypoxia and death. Treatment includes decontamination, respiratory
1: support, and bronchodilators. Chlorine and ammonia can also be found in liquid form, and exposure will cause burns to the skin and mucous membranes. It's not uncommon to find inhalation and burn injuries in patients exposed to these chemicals.
0: Finally, simple asphyxiants are gases that displace oxygen in the atmosphere. Simple asphyxiants include carbon dioxide, methane, nitrogen, propane, and helium.
1: Exposures to these gases lead to sudden asphyxia and death due to hypoxia. These are the most common toxic gases, and how they lead to inhalation injuries. Now let's shift our attention to some common toxic ingestions. Toxic ingestions can
0: occur both intentionally and unintentionally. 80% of unintentional ingestions occur in children between 1 and 3 years old. A typical presentation you might see on the test is a child old enough to crawl who presents with strange symptoms
1: like vomiting or respiratory issues, or decreased consciousness. Make sure to suspect accidental toxin ingestion of common household clean agents or medications in the home in a case like this. In adults, toxin ingestions are typically deliberate and include prescription drugs, drugs of abuse, and alcohols.
0: How toxic an ingested material is depends on a number of variables, like the dose of the ingestion, as well as whether or not there were co-ingestions. As an example, someone who has ingested a large amount of opiates but who has also been drinking alcohol can experience even more central
1: nervous system depression because of the interaction of the two toxic substances. Other variables such as toxin absorption, metabolism, and elimination will also affect the level of toxicity. Toxins that are quickly absorbed will have more toxic effects than drugs that take longer time to absorb, and toxins that are eliminated quickly will have a less effect than those that are eliminated more slowly. Arguably the most common toxic ingestions you'll respond to
0: will be overdose ingestions of drugs of abuse. Drugs of abuse include alcohol, opiates and narcotics, barbiturates, cannabis compounds, and hallucinogens.
1: Of these, alcohol ranks the highest. Half of all Americans aged 12 and older report current use of alcohol, and one in four admit to binge drinking, which is defined as five or more drinks within two hours. Alcohol is a key factor in 41 percent of all motor vehicle accident fatalities, 68 percent of manslaughters, 62 percent of assaults, and 54 percent of murder attempts. Needless to say, it's a problem and one you'll most likely encounter on every shift. Alcohol is absorbed in the stomach and the small intestine, and 80 to 90 percent is absorbed
0: within the first 30 minutes of ingestion. Acute symptoms of alcohol intoxication include central nervous system depression, respiratory depression, hypotension, and even
1: hypothermia. Patients also exhibit signs of discoordination and can be both sedated or agitated. Because of this, patients with alcohol intoxication should be evaluated for trauma.
0: Treatment includes airway and ventilatory management and administration of antiemetics for nausea if possible to prevent vomiting and aspiration. Sometimes, for
1: chronic alcoholism, we administer thiamine and dextrose, too. Chronic ingestion of alcohol can lead to nutritional deficiencies over time, including low levels of thiamine. Without thiamine, the body is unable to metabolize glucose, leading to hypoglycemia and worsening altered mental status. Chronic reduction of thiamine can lead to a syndrome known as Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome.
0: Wernicke's Korsakoff syndrome is the sudden onset of confusion, ataxia, disturbances of speech, and signs of neuropathy. It can also lead to coma and death. As you can see, however, these are the same signs and symptoms we would
1: expect in someone suffering from acute alcohol intoxication. This is why in the emergency department we typically give thiamine and glucose to our severely intoxicated patients with suspected history of chronic alcoholism, as it can be hard to differentiate the underlying pathology. Chronic use of alcohol can also lead to cirrhosis and pancreatitis. Cirrhosis
0: is destruction of the liver from chronic damage and can lead to ascites, splenomegaly, bleeding varices, and hepatic encephalopathy. Hepatic encephalopathy is an altered mentation due to accumulation of toxic waste products in the body
1: that the liver would normally have filtered out. As consumption of alcohol becomes chronic, patients can develop a dependence on it. Dependence differs from addiction in that addiction is characterized by harmful behavior that result from alcohol use whereas dependence is a physiological occurrence where the patient needs to maintain a level of alcohol in their system in order to function normally. If these patients stop drinking and don't detox or
0: wean off alcohol, they can develop alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which is a medical emergency. Alcohol withdrawal symptoms are caused by excitability in the brain since alcohol is
1: a central nervous system depressant. After abstaining from alcohol for 6 to 12 hours, minor reactions can begin to occur such as facial flushing, sweating, nausea and vomiting, tremors, and agitation. After 12 to 24 hours, patients can develop hallucinations which can be suicidal or homicidal in nature. After
0: 24 to 48 hours, alcohol withdrawal seizures can occur. These patients may require large doses of benzos such as diazepam or lorazepam because of high tolerance. These drugs can also be sedating, so care must be taken to monitor respirations after
1: administration. Finally, after 48 to 72 hours, delirium tremens can occur. This is a serious and life-threatening condition that develops in about 5% of all alcoholics who are hospitalized for withdrawal. The syndrome is characterized by confusion, disorientation, hallucinations, agitation, tremors, and can last for days.
0: Treatment for all alcohol-related emergencies should include IV hydration, electrolyte and thiamine administration with glucose if needed, as well as use of benzodiazepines for seizures. Continual reassessment of the airway and ventilation of these patients is critical as well. Yeah. Good
1: job, man. That was good. That was a long, long stretch. Another unfortunately common drug of abuse is opiates. Opiates include medications such as heroin, morphine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, oxycontin, and codeine. Narcotics such as these cause central nervous system changes, including euphoria and sedation. The euphoric effects are what make these drugs addictive. Other
0: signs of opiate overdose include hypotension, respiratory depression, nausea, and pinpoint pupils. The pinpoint pupils will be a big clue clinically and on your exam to suggest
1: narcotic overdose. More than 90% of opiate abuse in the US is of heroin. Heroin is typically cut with other drugs such as fentanyl which works synergistically with the heroin to prolong its effects. This means that the negative side effects such as respiratory depression are prolonged as well. Treatment is respiratory support and Narcan administration.
0: Narcan or naloxone is the antidote for opiate overdose to reverse the effects of the
1: opiate. Opiates increase activity on mu receptors in the body, and Narcan competes with the opiate for a spot on the receptor to reverse the effects. Narcan's half-life is anywhere from 20 to 90 minutes, which is much shorter than the half-life of a lot of opiates. This means that the Narcan will wear off before the opiate does, and is why
0: frequent reassessment of the patient and their respiratory status is critical after Narcan administration. Though opiates are probably the most common, there are other drugs of abuse that we'll quickly review.
1: Sedative hypnotic drugs include benzodiazepines and barbiturates. Examples are Ativan, Xanax, and Valium. These medications are considered downers because they cause CNS depression, and overdose can lead to respiratory depression and shock.
0: These patients don't have pinpoint pupils, and Narcan won't help. Treatment is supportive, and in some cases include the antidote flumazenil. Fumazanel reverses
1: benzodiazepines, but can lead to seizures, dysrhythmias, and hypotension. Because of this, flumazenil can only be given if the overdose is known to be only benzodiazepines. Most adult patients, however, will take other medications and will take these drugs with alcohol or narcotics, so flumazenil cannot be used without detrimental side effects. Usually the
0: only time we use flumazenil is when there's a pediatric overdose and we know that the child only consumed benzos. So keep it in mind as an antidote for benzos, but most
1: likely you won't use it clinically. Hallucinogens include drugs such as LSD, PCP, peyote, and mushrooms. These drugs can cause mild visual hallucinations or more severe effects such as respiratory and CNS depression. Treatment is supportive with a focus on minimizing stimulation and calming the patient.
0: Stimulants include medications such as cocaine, methamphetamine, PCP, and ecstasy. Stimulants act on the sympathetic nervous system and produce elevation of mood, increased focus, excitement and euphoria, hypertension, tachycardia, agitation, dilated pupils, and even paranoia, hallucinations, and psychosis.
1: Cocaine is a popular drug of abuse and can lead to cardiac issues with chest pain and tightness, as well as cardiac ischemia from coronary artery spasms.
0: PCP has been known to cause acute psychosis with violent and combative behavior. PCP-like cocaine can lead to hypertensive crisis and cardiac failure. Due to their sympathetic effects,
1: all of these medications can lead to malignant hyperthermia. Combative, aggressive, or agitated patients may need medications to calm them down and to allow for safe transport. Benzodiazepines such as Valium and Ativan are sometimes used for this, but you'll need to refer to your local protocols and medical control for further guidance. Ingestions of
0: drugs of abuse, whether it be alcohol, cocaine, or heroin, are obviously going to lead to bad side effects. However, overdoses of prescribed medications can also lead to serious issues, and there are a few here that are worth noting – tricyclic antidepressants,
1: cardiac medications, and Tylenol. Obviously, any medication, if given incorrectly or too high of a dose, can lead to poisoning and toxicological effects. We highlight these three, however, because they tend to be more common and more deadly if not discovered and treated early tricyclic antidepressants or TCAs used to be prescribed quite often for conditions such as depression. TCAs include amitriptyline, despiramine, imipramine, and nortriptyline. Don't worry about memorizing these, but if you have a patient who overdoses on psychiatric medications or who has a history of depression and overdose, make sure to check their medications to see if any fall into the category of TCAs.
0: This can show up on the exam as a patient with a history of depression who's found with toxicological symptoms, and they want you to recognize that because of their history of depression, it may be a TCA medication. TCA's block serotonin and norepinephrine in the brain. In overdose, they block sodium channels in the heart which lead to serious arrhythmias and death.
1: Patients suffering from TCA overdose will typically present with CNS depression leading to respiratory depression as well as arrhythmias. The telltale arrhythmia scene is a prolonged QRS complex due to the sodium channel blocking occurring at the AV node. If left untreated, the QRS can continue to prolong and lead to torsades de pointe.
0: Seizures can also occur in TCA overdose. The treatment and antidote for TCA overdose is sodium bicarb. Sodium bicarbonate can reverse the cardiac effects of the drug
1: and shorten the QRS. If seizures occur, benzodiazepines should be utilized as well. Finally, for patients with severe CNS depression and respiratory failure, intubation and airway control is vitally important. Calcium channel blocker and
0: beta blocker overdose is another life-threatening overdose that is seen more often than we would like because of how many people are on these medications. Usually due to a patient accidentally taking more than the prescribed dose, beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdoses lead to
1: hypotension and bradycardia. Luckily, there are antidotes for both. For calcium channel blockers, the antidote is calcium. Pretty straightforward. For beta blockers, the antidote is glucagon. Glucagon increases heart rate and myocardial contractility by bypassing the beta receptors. Obviously, treatment with fluids and pressors may also be indicated for patients with severe hypotension and bradycardia.
0: The last common medication ingestion we want to cover is acetaminophen or Tylenol.
1: Tylenol is an extremely common medication and can be found in lots of different over-the-counter formulations. Many sinus and cold medications have acetaminophen in them. and overdose can occur because patients take too much of these medications or take a bunch of different medications that all contain acetaminophen. Tylenol overdose is also common in suicide attempts because toxic effects are known to many and it's so easy to get a hold of. Acetaminophen
0: is usually broken down into non-toxic substances that are eliminated. At high doses, however, the system is overwhelmed and the acetaminophen is broken down into its toxic metabolites,
1: which disrupt the membranes of the liver cells. There are four stages to acetaminophen overdose. In the first stage, which occurs within a few hours, patients begin to develop GI upset, nausea, and vomiting. In phase two, the liver starts to become inflamed from the toxic metabolites, and liver enzymes in the blood rise. In stage three, there's
0: liver damage, and then in stage four, the patient will either recover or go on to have liver failure, possibly requiring liver transplant. Whether or not the patient requires treatment depends
1: on the amount of Tylenol in their system after four hours of ingestion. It's critical for the first responder to try and figure out the exact amount of Tylenol ingested as well as at what time it was ingested so that treatment can be started as soon as possible. If given within the first hour of ingestion, activated charcoal can be given to the patient to prevent toxicity. The patient drinks the activated charcoal, which binds the acetaminophen to the stomach so that it's
0: not absorbed. The charcoal with bound acetaminophen then moves through the digestive system without the Tylenol being absorbed into the bloodstream and reaching the liver.
1: Activated charcoal can actually be used for quite a few toxic ingestions if given within the first hour of the ingestion. Other toxins that can be bound by activated charcoal include opiates, aspirin, calcium channel blockers, TCAs, and barbiturates. For the sake of the
0: National Registry, we don't think you need to memorize what toxins can be bound or not bound by activated charcoal. The trick here is to make sure that you contact poison control right away with toxic
1: ingestions because they'll be able to tell you whether or not the charcoal is indicated. Also keep in mind that in cases where it may be beneficial, it must be given within the first hour. It's worth mentioning here that as a general rule, we no longer pump people's stomachs or give them medications that cause them to vomit. We found that this was way too big of a risk to the patient's airway, and also sometimes expose the esophagus and airway to second exposure of a toxin which caused damage. So these are some of the common ingestions you may come in contact with on the road.
0: This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but are some of the high yield toxins and poisonings that you should know for the exam. As always, good management of airway and circulation is key, and make sure to contact poison control early on for treatment and management guidance.
1: There are a few more toxins we need to discuss, and these include acids and alkalis, hydrocarbons, hydrogen fluoride, and organophosphates.
0: Acids and alkalis can be absorbed through the skin and sometimes inhaled. Examples include ammonia, hydrochloric acid, chlorine, and phosgene. If inhaled, these chemicals will cause pulmonary edema, and if absorbed through the skin, will cause
1: burns. Two types of burns can occur. Acids lead to coagulative necrosis, which is where the tissues coagulate with blood and skin. Alkalies, or bases, cause liquefactive necrosis. Liquefactive necrosis causes liquefying of the tissue, so these burns continue to burn deeper and deeper into the tissue. Alkali burns cause much deeper burns if left on the skin.
0: If inhaled, patients will have stridor, hoarseness, wheezing, and pulmonary edema. If ingested, they'll have oral pain, sore throat, and drooling from internal burns. Decontamination is critical and needs to be
1: done as soon as possible. Hydrocarbons are a large class of organic molecules of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Chemicals in this class include methane, propane, gasoline, kerosene, benzene, toluene, and chloroform. The chemical structure of each is what makes them more volatile than others. Ingestion
0: and inhalation can cause destruction of alveolar and capillary membranes, leading to inflammation in the lungs and aspiration. They can also cause heart sensitization,
1: leading to patients developing arrhythmias like PVCs, which can lead to VTAC or VFib. They are also a CNS depressant and give patients a high if inhaled. An example of this is huffing, sniffing, or bagging, where patients spray spray paint into a bag and huff or sniff the paint or gasoline. Because of the cardiac sensitization of these patients, there have actually been cases of these patients being startled by police and having sudden cardiac events.
0: Hydrofluoric acid is an acid worth mentioning separately, only because it has an antidote and an interesting effect on tissues. Hydrofluoric acid is a dermal and pulmonary irritant that can penetrate deep into tissue.
1: The fluoride ions bind strongly to calcium and magnesium and can lead to life-threatening low calcium, low magnesium, and low potassium. This leads to EKG changes like prolonged QT, which can further lead to arrhythmias and death. The treatment
0: is calcium replacement. If the skin comes in contact with hydrofluoric acid, the burns can be deep, so topical calcium gluconate and epsom salts, which contain magnesium, can help
1: stop the burning process. Hydrofluoric acid is also a chemical irritant if inhaled. We talked about chemical irritants and how they lead to reactions of the tissue that lead to edema. Calcium gluconate can actually be nebulized to help prevent worsening inhalation burns in the case of hydrofluoric acid.
0: So hydrofluoric acid falls into the category of acids as well as chemical irritants, but we talk about it separate because the treatment with calcium in these cases
1: can be life saving. Finally, we'll talk about organophosphates and chemical weapons. Organophosphates are compounds typically found in pesticides and fertilizers. These compounds have cholinergic effects, meaning that they act like acetylcholine. Cholinergics lead to symptoms that activate the parasympathetic nervous system.
0: Symptoms include salivation, urination, bradycardia, diarrhea, and wheezing. You can think of these patients as wet.
1: Pretty gross. Two mnemonics exist for cholinergic symptoms. One is sludge and another is dumbbells. You can see both of these in your workbook. Patients are at risk of respiratory issues due to the increased fluids in their lungs, and treatment consists of medications that reverse the effects. These
0: medications are atropine and Tupam. They're given until the secretions stop and a lot of medication
1: may be required depending on the dose of the toxin. Organophosphates have been used as chemical weapons since they can be spread easily and rapidly. Sarin gas is an organophosphate gas, and patients die of suffocation because of the increased secretions in the lungs.
0: Other substances have been used as chemical weapons in the past, some of these compounds we have already discussed. Chemical weapons can be divided into nerve agents, blister
1: agents, choking agents, and blood agents. Nerve agents include sarin, somin, and VX gas. These compounds are the deadliest and interfere with the body's respiratory and cardiovascular system by causing damage to the central nervous system. Organophosphates fall into this category because they affect the parasympathetic nervous system. Blister
0: agents include mustard gas, lewisite, and phosgene gas. These agents cause
1: blistering of the skin when exposed and can lead to respiratory issues if inhaled. Choking agents include chlorine gas and phosgene gas. These compounds are irritants and cause respiratory and pulmonary irritation and choking.
0: Blood agents include hydrogen chloride and cyanide. These agents interfere with oxygen delivery in the bloodstream and lead to hypoxia and death. Now obviously, decontamination and respiratory support is the most critical for the majority of these chemicals. Hopefully, none of our first responders will ever have to respond to such an attack.
1: Toxicology covers a lot of different chemicals and compounds, but a general all-cause approach to toxin exposures is key to keeping yourself and your patients safe from worsening harm. In this lecture, we covered a ton of different toxins and exposures. First, we discussed the general approach to all toxicological emergencies. Then, we discussed toxic gases, which we broke down into cellular asphyxiants, irritant gases, and simple asphyxiants. We then covered toxic ingestions, including drugs of abuse, like alcohol and opiates, as well as tricyclic antidepressants, calcium channel and beta blockers, and Tylenol. We also went over acids and alkalis, hydrocarbons, hydrofluoric acid, organophosphates, and chemical weapons. Any substance can harm the body, leading to toxic effects. Your job is to determine the risk of the substance causing toxicity, recognize the signs and symptoms of toxic exposure, and mitigate the complications that can occur in patients suffering from toxic exposure. It doesn't take a special certification in toxicology to be a tox medic or EMT. These are things that you will deal with and see every day of your career. And now you know how to best approach these situations so that you can identify and stop toxicological emergencies and save the lives of the patients you serve.